Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. None told me their names, just their disappointments. None ever stayed and none returned. Passing them on the stairs, it was as if we'd never met, as if I'd never been inside them. This program features the work of 2017 writer Wansi Young Cho. He spoke with curator Jordan Amani Keith about his work. I'm excited by your collection, the promise of your collection of first-person accounts, childhood to adulthood. Can you tell me if you have a working title for this collection and why the approach of first-person accounts as opposed to maybe fictionalizing the work? Why is this important to you? A tentative title is Let's Pretend We Don't Know Each Other. And it is first-person accounts. I think some details will be fictionalized a little bit, but, I mean, I think the bulk of my fiction is super autobiographical. And it has so much to do with how I've interpreted love over the years. I've always been a hyper-romantic, and... I think that has generally not worked for me. <laughs> but I, I mean, I still, that's, I think it's just who I am. And so I always bounce back to that. But I think a lot of factors play into it being Asian, being Korean, and then being gay, and then sort of being an outsider, even within these outsider communities. So there's tangents of love, like the sense of belonging and not belonging. And so I think that's at the core of each story. Um, and there, are, all the stories will be based on love experiences that, that I've had. And not just romantic, but, you know, parental and friend, et cetera. How, I wonder, do you feel influenced to become hyper-romantic? Were there outside influences? that give you that experience and how does it show up in the work? And I think that's multi-pronged. Um, I think part of it is sort of at least every American, but I mean I think most people in the world, their sense of romance and love is heavily influenced by movies and books and TV, poetry, etc., um, I think that has a lot to do with, like, how love takes shape in our minds. But another huge influence is my parents' relationship, which was horrible. And it's interesting because for a long time, my brother, my younger brother, he avoided the idea of love. Like, he was like, I'll never be a good boyfriend, husband father, and that was the path he had sort of taken for some time, for a long time, because of our parents' relationship, because it was such a bad relationship. And I went the other direction. I said, I'm going to meet someone, and I'm going to make it 
perfect. And, you know, I think in my head, I incorporated all those ideas from TV and movies. And so I think that's the the soul or the nexus of my hyper-romanticism. Mm-hmm. So how will the stories that you tell influence that genre of hyper-romanticism, do you imagine? You know, I read that one piece, Jimmy B., 1997, part one, at orientation. And that is based on a crush I had on a straight guy in high school. And, I mean, I think so many people will relate back to that sort of mindset. I mean, you're dumb. (laughs) Dumb because you think you're in love. You know, the hormones are on high. And so, you know, I think 20 years later... You know, I've had numerous heartbreaks, and but I think that I've learned a lot, and I think I have, I mean, I think I know more about love, but unless at the same time, I often think of that, that Joni Mitchell song, Both Sides Now, you know, and I think the line is, I've looked at love from both sides now. And, and being on the other side of love, like having finally met someone you know, at age 37 last year, who loved me back has really, I mean, it's my first time, you know, it's all, it's just been, I love yous with nothing and no reciprocity all of these years. So this recent, very recent encounter with, I think real love is much different than how I thought it would look and feel. And so... I think about growing to understand love and loving yourself. That is so much part of this story because there's so much self-loathing in the earlier stories. So your character, does the intersection of race play out as well in the fictionalization? Like, they're... The character's gay, right? Mm. But does race play out in the stories? I asked and wrote Zeus Obsession, and I thought about our gods and their appearance across many cultures. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, In this particular story, I think the part that comes after... It has a lot to do with race because essentially, I mean, the essential idea of these stories, these based in Greek mythology, then into reincarnation, you know, brings us to the present day. And one of the lovers is born as a white male and earlier than the Korean American guy. And that plays a factor in seeing each other and or not seeing each other. I I think especially with Asian Americans, there's a visibility factor almost or invisibility. And I think not entirely put on by society, but also used as a tool by a lot of Asian Americans. They're like, I'm okay over here. So, you know, 
I mean, I noticed that with some of my Asian American friends about like casting in cinema, you know, I'm like, this is an issue. And they're like, yeah, I'm okay. Like, I've say more. That. You know, I think that there's, for all minorities, but speaking personally, you know, it's rare to see an Asian face on the screen. I mean, it's more than ever before. Yeah, totally. But, you know, it's, it's getting out of the roles we're stereotyped into. I mean, I feel like every Asian actor out there is like, gotta know some sort of martial art or be able to speak in an accent so they can be a Chinese delivery person or something like that. And then, you know, like with recent casting in that movie Doctor Strange and uh, Ghost in the Shell where Asian, you know, I mean, these are Asian characters being played by white actors. Mm. And so in conversation with some of my, or not in conversation with some of my Asian friends, you know, they're like, I've got my really well-paying job in the tech industry. I'm solid. I'm cool. Whatever. No need to make a fuss. But I'm like, you're having children, you know, and I don't know, what are their options going to be or not because of the absence of Asian faces. If you could have one, only one, of the stories that you're writing for this project turned into a film, which one of these stories would be? What's the little bit of the arc of it, and how does the main character change? So the piece that I read at your birthday party last year, I think it would make a great animated short. Um, that story is called For All the Wars Inside Us, and it is all about how after something has ended with someone, you see them everywhere. In a sign or on a street corner you'd stood at with them or in a store you'd gone to with them, even though it's a store you'd been to plenty of times before on your own or with other people, a restaurant. So that story is actually about the same guy in this Elysian Field story, but we stopped speaking and I'd never really wanted to live in Los Angeles anyhow. But after that, I mean, he stayed in the entire city. And so the story for all the wars inside us, it gets a bit fantastical because the narrator, who's essentially me, decides that he's going to tear the city down because everything reminds him of this ex-lover. You know, and he he tells everyone in L.A. that he's going to tear the city down. And he, with his bare hands, like, takes down stop signs, and but he gets explosives and tears down mansions in the Hollywood Hills and rides them into the ocean, and he completely wrecks the city, which... I mean, I think a live-action version would be cool, but extremely expensive. And I think with animated, it could really elevate the, I mean, you know, the fantastical idea that a person would and does tear down the city of Los Angeles to forget or try to forget but does not succeed. 
Now we'll hear a selection from Wansi's live reading. The Men on the Hill. They were studio apartments somewhere on the east side, each boxy with flat roofs that might open like a lid, dirt landings out the front door. I was sure they were on the brink of being leveled for glassy condos with a view of the park. Mine was at the very top, up three different ragged flights carved into this rocky hillside looming above all the others. Trees all around, Christmas lights strung up in all of them, generally private, all inhabited by men. If this were any other city, we might be friends. We might have parties on one of our patios or drop off plates of food from meals too big for one person to eat. We might lean out of our windows to ask how each other's days were. We might say hello. But we didn't do any of this, and we were fine with that. It is perhaps why we'd all chosen to live there, been drawn to this space, to be alone. I was keeping things simple now. Up to this point, I'd been moving around with some frequency. I'd bought a barely used futon, a desk that served as both butcher block and dining table, and a few milk crates in lieu of a dresser. Other things like kitchenware, I slowly gathered as needed from Goodwill. That was that. One morning, I sat outside and sipped my coffee while watching my neighbor in the house below. I kept a book on my lap, but I wasn't going to read it. I never did. It was the only book I owned, and all it ever did was sit in my lap or on my desk. The cover did not reveal author or title. It was weathered in the corners and looked as if it had been well-read and loved by many others. Maybe that was true before I'd bought it at that garage sale, but I can't tell you who'd written that book or what it was called. I never opened it. I can tell you that the cover was blue. What are you reading? My neighbor asked. Old man in the sea, I lied. <laughs> sort of looked like you were watching me. Yes, I was. Why? I'd like to fuck you. Oh, I'm not, he started. I'm not like that. Not like what? He looked me over. I was shirtless and wearing torn up shorts and flip flops. My hair was dyed blonde, but my black roots were showing. Well, it's just I've never, I have. <laughs> he walked up the steps, walked past me and into my house. He took a seat on my only chair and I scratched his knee. I ran my fingers along the back of his head, then pulled off his t-shirt. As I did this, he put his arms up like a child. I hooked my hands under each of his arms and stood him up. Reaching around, I undid a button clasp, letting his khakis fall to the floor. Other than his socks, he stood completely naked, still with his back to me. I ran a finger along his neck and around to his belly button. I rested my hand on his cock. He shivered. Afterwards, we lay side by side in the early afternoon light that covered my bed, his cum glistening on my belly and the sheets. That was nice, he said. Yeah, sure was. Have you lived here a long time? 
in the apartments? Few years at least. How about the city? About 15 years, I guess. I came here with my girlfriend from St. Louis. We got married, I fucked up, we got divorced, then I was here. I looked him in the eyes and nodded. I haven't been with anyone else yet since then. I mean, I don't know why. How'd you fuck up? He didn't look away as he said, I punched her a few times or I don't know how many times while I was fucking her. Gotcha. Rolling over on him, I moved to kiss him and he put his hand flat against my chest and pushed me aside. I then got off the bed and put my shorts back on. He got dressed and headed towards the door. Thanks, he said. Yeah, sure, I said. Hey, what's your name, by the way? He stopped and smirked. What's yours? As he walked down to his place, I dragged my chair out to the landing and fished a half-smoked cigarette out of the pack. The sun began to set, and I looked east at the blue, deepening all around. As the sun was about to wink out, a light popped on, two houses down. A man stepped out, hands on his hips, stretching forwards and backwards. He was in his fifties, probably, full head of silver-gray hair and a small but likely growing paunch. He had a thick beard and stash, handsome, like an aging moving star. I named this one Jerry. I named them all eventually. He, or any of them, never cared to give that tiny bit of information, just everything else. I'd bedded seven of the residents of this informal community. There was the first guy from the house down below, and Jerry from two houses west. Then there was Michael, Matt, two different Johns, and Hank. They must have spoken to each other, or at least told one another about me. I never saw it, though. Hardly anyone ever looked at anything but their own feet going up and down the stairs. After Jerry, the rest just sort of wandered to my door. They never knocked. It just seemed they stood there, waiting until I came out to smoke. While I fucked Jerry, he told me about how he'd gotten here. How he'd left his glamorous job on the East Coast to move here and become a movie star. And while doing that, he tended bar. He met a girl who'd come to do the same. Things were good for a time, he said. And one day, the girl got cast in something big. That was that for him and her. He was weeping a bit, just as I came inside him. I lay beside him for a moment, running my fingers through his hair. He wiped his tears away and nuzzled deep in the crook of my neck. The sound of his jangling belt woke me. He got the rest of his clothes on and walked quietly to the front door. Just before he walked out, he glanced at me and mouthed the words, thank you. They were all handsome in their own way, different in age and build. I fucked all of them and they told me their stories, how they'd come out here chasing dreams, love, money, the sun running right up to the water. They watched it set day after day until they couldn't look at it. Many cried like Jerry. None told me their names, just their disappointments. None ever stayed and none returned. Passing them on the stairs, it was as if we'd never met, as if I'd never been inside them. Michael had been a drifter, riding on the tops of trains and hitchhiking his way across the country. 
He'd fallen in love with a fellow drifter and landed here. One night, he'd had a few too many at a party they'd gone to. She died in the wreck. Sandy's wife had cheated on him constantly, mainly because of his limp dick, until she found another guy. One of them had lost all his money on drugs, and another had lived with his mother into his 40s because he was in love with her. I can't remember Hank or anyone else's stories, just tiny bits, all tragedies or maladies of some sort or another. And I could no longer remember how it was I'd arrived here. Sometime later, I sat on my porch smoking and counted up the houses, 18 in total. I'd been with every man who lived here, all 17. No one had come around in days, maybe a week. I was bored. Every day I came outside, book in my lap, and looked around, waiting for someone to come back, fool around, but no one came. There was nothing to do but watch the sun go up and down. One afternoon, I saw that first guy open his front door, the one who lived in the house below. He was walking box after box down to a pickup truck. A woman came up and helped him carry down his mattress and a desk. She was pretty. They seemed happy. I wondered if she was the ex he'd treated like a punching bag or if it was someone new. The truck was filled in no time, and he came back up for one last sweep. He stepped back out with a duffel bag, shut the door, and walked towards the steps. You never answered my question, I said. He stopped then, his head clicked just slightly, but his eyes kept forward, and I could just catch the sunlight on the tip of his nose. Likewise, he said, still reading that same book. Holding it out to him, I said, you should have it. He walked towards me, took the book and flipped through it, then set it down at my feet. That's funny, man. There was hawking from the street. He stood there in the way people do when they're trying to remember if they've left something behind. Then he shuffled down the stairs, hopped into the truck, and drove away. I picked up the book. All the pages were blank, faded. Over the next few months, they all left. None of them bothered with goodbyes, and no one new moved in. All the Christmas lights had burnt out. At night smoking, looking down and around, all the other units looked like empty boxes, scattered like too many dice tossed on this rocky hillside. That's it. <laughs> Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production. The 2017 curator of this program is Jordan Amani Keith. This episode of Sound Pages was produced by Alyssa Keene and Daniel Gunther. Recording engineers are Daniel Gunther, Joel Maddox, and Tom Stiles. Narrator is Alyssa Keene. And executive director of Jack Straw Cultural Center is Joan Rabinowitz. Theme music by the Steve Griggs Ensemble, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology, available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>